a new era is upon us and Tangent is back with a new limited series hosted by venture capitalist Jeffrey Berman and me, PropTech entrepreneur Edward Cohen. Tangent unites PropTech founders, real estate investors, urban leaders and passionate creators who are improving our cities and quality of life. Join us to learn how we can solve the present day challenges in our communities with innovative technology and greater collaboration. We'll examine diverse issues through interviews and conversations where going off on a tangent is encouraged, hoping to help you become a more nuanced thinker and find comfort in data. If you are working on a PropTech solution, a nonprofit, or a small business that makes our cities better and would like your mission featured on our features segment, please email us at tangentcommunity at gmail.com. Hi, welcome to Tangent. I'm Edward Cohen. I'm Jeffrey Berman, a general partner at Canberra Creek, and I am the wonderful co-host of the Tangent podcast that Edward has created. Today on Tangent, we have Nick Romito, founder and CEO at VTS, commercial real estate's leading leasing and asset management platform. Hi, Nick. Where does this podcast find you? Hey, everybody. Uh, I am at our headquarters here in New York City. Thanks for having me. Best city in the world, as some say, at least in the U.S. Nick, under your leadership, VTS has grown to more than 60% of Class A office space in the U.S. and over 12 billion square feet of office, retail, and industrial is managed through your platform globally. Uh, you, you have an unrivaled perspective to talk to us about uh, the state of the office market and what's going on, so let it roll. Yeah, um, I mean, everybody reads the headlines, right? I don't think it's news to anybody that most owners of office are in some pretty murky waters. I, I don't know if there's an end in sight uh, in some regards because it's kind of multiple things coming together at once that are this perfect storm. Uh, on, on one hand, you still kind of have this COVID, I don't want to call it a hangover, but this sh change that has happened about how we use offices, right? I think everybody thought early on that a year ago, buildings would be totally full and they're just not. You know, I think probably in the best buildings, you're seeing maybe 70% three days a week. The average is probably more like 50. Uh, and that's in some markets, not others. Um, that's kind of one data point. Another data point is just the overall demand for office space, just in the top eight cities in the US, is down about 21% year over year, and still 46% off of pre-COVID levels, meaning there are 46% less people out in the market trying to find new office space than there were pre-COVID uh, across those major markets. And it's going the wrong way, right? We're down from last year. I think you, you combine those two things, and right, what that means is, you know, revenue effectively in those markets or the whole US is shrinking. Well, you also have debt maturing, right? Revenue covers debt. So it's kind of this weird storm where you're seeing the headlines of major institutional owners giving back buildings. I mean, I've been doing this 20 years. I think maybe you saw some of that in kind of 08, but like, I don't remember it at the level or the names that I'm seeing. And these guys are all really smart. So I'm sure that there's a mathematical reason why for some of these buildings, it just doesn't make sense. You're not gonna, you're never gonna hit whatever your performer was five years ago, but it doesn't change the fact that office is in a, a really interesting place. I think even with that said, most of the larger office owners are still bullish office. They're just trying to figure out what parts of their portfolio will make sense because they know that not, not all of it will, right? There is a subset of office now that they know is gonna be really challenged for the foreseeable future, but 
there are also other parts that are going to be successful. So if I take, if I take for example, just take the top 5% of the trophy assets in, in New York, right? Well, that category, that segment is seeing actual rent growth of about 20% year over year. So that's a category that's, that's growing rent, right? And so what does that tell you? I think it tells you that people, tenants, are excited about office if that office probably looks pretty special, right? It is highly amenitized. It is offering their teams things that they cannot get at home, and it's appealing enough where I'd rather be there than at my house. I don't wanna, I don't wanna interrupt the flow, but you said a lot that I think our audience would wanna unpack. So before we get to the rest of it, and I have a feeling you're gonna end up on financing and interest rates. So the last point you made first, you were talking about the creme de la creme of buildings, specifically New York. So what percentage of the office buildings would you characterize or classify as creme de la creme? And to be even more specific, would you say it's only buildings like the new vintages from Hudson Yards, one Vanderbilt, et cetera? Or do you think there are legacy buildings, let's say like the Empire State Building that ES ESRT owns and maintains really well? well how, do, how do you think about that? It's a good question. I think, well, it's kind of a loaded question because even within those buildings you, you, you mentioned, right? The top of those buildings versus the bottom of those buildings is very different. So that's the, you know, the tricky part about the office sector is you could have such a different comp from the base of the building to the tower floors from both a rent perspective, but also just maybe an overall appeal. And so my comment was really referring to the one Madison's of the world, right? Like the, the kind of newer vintage buildings that, you know, you're seeing the $200 rents, right? At the tower, at tower floors. Now, that being said, right? You've got buildings like Empire State where they are doing some unbelievable work to almost re-amenitize these buildings that creates a totally different experience. And so I'm actually excited to see the work that they're doing come to life and how the overall kind of tenant environment reacts to it, because I think it'll be positive. So that doesn't really give us an answer. I'm not, I, I want to understand from like an order of magnitude. It's a small percentage. You're talking, call it 5%, right? Of, so you've got class B, class A trophy, right? So maybe it's 5% of the total market, uh, maybe 10 in some markets, but you know, the vast majority of places like New York is commodity space, right? It's side street buildings where owners are more cash flow driven and they're not going to spend the money. So, so what you're saying is for the marquee properties and the groups that own them. So I'm thinking like Boston properties, right? That has just a magnificent portfolio or the former uh, Columbia uh, Property Trust, uh, also one of our LPs, they had a great portfolio. Those folks, their buildings probably doing quite a bit better, maybe experiencing some rent growth. The rest, what you're saying is the data is telling you office is, would you, would you call it, are the rents collapsing? Are they shrinking? And, and then, and the, and the, and the corollary question to that is where the, the first point you made about people not showing up in the office, that's more of a, a management driven thing. Now you're seeing the, the financial world, wall street say enough is enough, you know, come back to the office. Like what, what do you guys, how do you think you're going to, you're going to advance in your career if you're, if you're sitting at home, Ken Griffin, who is arguably the most successful hedge funder on the planet right now, he said it best. He said, the reason that we had this banner year, 16 billion in profits, which I think was more than half of the profits for the entire industry, he said, everyone's showing up to work. Everyone's in the office. So 
what I'm what I'm trying to understand is is the the second a function of the first are the buildings is the office market suffering because the management teams the tenants aren't saying hey guys hey come back to work do, do you think that's what's happening is, is is there is there some is there some nuance there I'll answer that in, in two ways I think one to your original question on just you know the owners that are probably set up for more success are yeah I think it's the folks who have the Salesforce towers, the one Madison's, the really beautiful amenitized buildings that just candidly lend themselves more to how people are going to probably work moving forward, even if they are in the office, right? They're just, they're going to work different in different places in the building. They want to have breakout. It's just, it's a little bit different. It doesn't mean that commodity space can't make investments to make that work because they totally can't. The problem is capital is very expensive right now, right? So it's not easy. It's, it's easy to say to do that, but it's not easy to actually get the capital to do it. I think to your second question on like whose fault is it, which is kind of the question, like is it the is it the company's fault because you guys are saying work from home, you lazy bastards? Um, whoa, whoa! I did not say that. <laughs> uh, your words, not mine. Um, so <laughs> I think listen, I'm a CEO of a 600 person company, right? And so and. The, our largest percentage of people are engineers and product people. And so I can tell you that it has been a market where all the leverage has been the employee, right? In a competitive market we've had for the past seven years, right? For those folks who are such valuable assets, right? They're your builders. You, you really couldn't argue with what they wanted from a, a work perspective. And I, you kind of, you, you did that knowing that Listen, they're they're largely heads down writing code, so like, you want them in a in a space where they are gonna be productive, and if they're saying it's at home, then it's hard to argue with that because you don't write code. So that's been the larger sense. I will say for us, the other two thirds of our business, right, who are business people, account managers, marketing, we've been largely in for like two years, at least two to three days a week, and like I don't have a mandate. I said you decide what you want to do because it was still kind of a weird world and I was figuring out what we should do. But on their own accord said, dude, culture, we're here for the culture. Yeah, the opportunity, but like the culture drives that. And so it wasn't up until literally a few months ago that I said, okay, I'm picking a date, which is March 6th. By March 6th, we're in the office. And if you don't want to be here, I love you, I'm going to miss you. But that is what we did. Listen, I, I think I'm someone who now believes that Listen, maybe one day at home a week to do heads down work, one on ones, like it's probably valuable, good time. But there is no world where we are more efficient from home. Like, you know, you mentioned Ken Griffey. I've asked pretty much all of my venture capital investors, who are your most successful companies? Pretty much every time it is a company who is either in the office five days a week or three or four. The data is there. No one's collecting it and making a deal, a big deal out of it. But I promise you the data is there. Well, and it's also, it's just a function of, of what humans want as well. I I miss interacting with my partners and my team on a daily basis in person. And that there to your point, the culture one plus one does equal three oftentimes. You just have in fact every time when you're when you're building a great company. I mean I would much rather be doing this in person because we'd be able to feed off our energy more so than we can staring through this lovely Riverside app. It's just, uh, it's just different. So getting back to the original question, so you've got um, a, a confluence of factors that's hitting office. Were you going to mention 
the fact that there is a massive amount of uh, financings, debt, leverage coming due over the next, over the short term with much higher interest rates. And now all of a sudden buildings that might've made sense three or four years ago, even two years ago, no longer make sense. Yeah, that is, that is the case. And I think an interesting data point, if you look at, there's obviously not a, there's not a lot of buildings, the capital markets are down by like some massive percentage year over year. There's not a lot of buildings kind of trading hands. You're reading about things being given back but, or potentially given back. But if you look at a lot of the deals that have actually happened, they're not the big institutions, right? They're like, I don't want to call them mom and pops, but they're family offices who have cash to go and buy assets, right? They're not 100% relying on the banks to do it at some crazy rate. So that's a, I don't know, it's probably not a great data point because you want to see capital moving, but it's going to create a really interesting addition to the office environment for the next 12 to, I'm guessing, at least 12 months that we haven't seen in a long time. Super interesting stuff. And I'd personally love to see some data about, you know, companies that are the same size or within the same industry uh, and how are they faring between each other? How is their productivity up or down? How are their uh, revenues up or down, you know, based on if they're coming to the office or they're hybrid or whatnot? I think that will be the definitive data, but some super interesting data points and undeniably, uh, you know, collaboration face to face, you know, it's what drives us as humans, you know, we're social creatures. Real estate investors keep collecting more and more data than we know what to do with. This is why accessing data instantly wherever you are and utilizing it effectively have become core advantages to investing and managing real estate. Raccord provides automated direct connectivity into your firm's internal data. Raccord's technology distills complex Excel models and integrates disparate data sources into one location, allowing for real-time acquisitions and portfolio analysis. Raccord provides a secure, investor-friendly mobile app that brings together all your business intelligence, creating one source of truth for investment teams to support data-driven decisions. Complex data models made simple at your fingerprints. That's right, Raccord is changing how commercial real estate players collect, access, and utilize data. With teams working asynchronously and across geographies and deals getting done at a faster pace, Having direct connectivity to your data on the road can save critical time and improve execution accuracy. Real estate investors use Raccord to have a single source of truth for your business intelligence to better understand your assets and the markets you're investing in. To learn more, please visit Raccord.com. That's R-A-C-C-O-R-D.com. Now... In terms of like, why, why should we all care? I mean, if we're in, in commercial real estate, uh, if we were working in office or if you work at an office, you know, we, by definition, we should care about what, what happens in the office market. But uh, many downtowns, many cities, I mean, uh, are struggling to really bring people back. And, and that, that means that empty offices will have knock-on effects, not only on, on the office space, but, you know, also on urban retail services and public transport. So, I mean, this is, we're talking about cities revenues here uh, that they will need to replace somehow. So we should really all all be caring about what's happening. Uh, office office market could be the the canary in the coal mine for many many cities around the world. But uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about paradigm shift, right? How will commercial real estate evolve? You know, going forward, uh, we're not going to be operating, managing, investing, using the buildings the same way as we have to. 
as, as we have been. So yeah, talk about, you know, Nick, what, what do you foresee, you know, changing in, in from the, let's talk about first the, the property owners, the operators, the developers perspectives. I mean, how are they planning on, on signing new tenants to their offices? Um, you know, how are they planning to upgrading or repositioning their assets to keep them valuable and, and resilient for years to come? So I think the shift itself is not just the buildings, it's the teams that run them, right? If, if the team running the building doesn't believe that the expectations of the customer have changed, do whatever you want to that building, it's not gonna really do all that much, right? So I think there's a couple of things that we've seen happen over the past, even really year. One, you've tr traditionally had these two teams who run a building, right? Or maybe three, you've got leasing, which is either a third party or in-house. You have an asset manager who's kind of the CEO of that asset. And you have property management, right? Those are, that's the team. Those teams don't talk all that much, right? When there's a meaningful update about a lease renewal, but like day to day, they run their own separate channels. The new world, that those three people consider themselves probably more of a single team who is there to better service the customers in that building however they can, right? Property management's job goes from triaging a work order to what can I do for you today, Mr. Romito? How's your day going? It feels more like a hospitality-esque environment than it does, you know, just Frank's here to fix the light bulbs. Because again, if you were gonna get somebody off their couch, that experience better be better. And so for us, it, we started by thinking, okay, we, we started to see some customers make that transition. And it's funny, CBRE, you know, we just did a, a financing with them a few months ago and you know, we were in a pretty unique spot where we had a couple options and you know, their view of the world was like, we as, a, as the largest service provider in the world have to make that shift. And I was like, oh, wow, these guys, they actually get it. Like that's a, that is a meaningful thing to say for a $30 billion company at the CEO down. And so that excited us. And when you see how it's playing out, you know, they're saying that message, you've got some of the larger owners themselves who are now hiring roles that didn't exist a year ago. Right? They've got, they might have a property manager, they also have a head of community. What does that mean? It means it's that person's job to engage with the customers, the tenants in the building every single week. Right? It's a, it's a form of communication. So I think it's, it starts with the team and then it's what's possible in the building. Right? We have to, we've, you've got to create some kind of experience that is different from just, hey, your workplace is the 14th floor. That is not true anymore. Your workplace, if you want to get somebody back, their workplace is probably all four buildings you own. It's the amenities in this building, it's their office in that building, it's the restaurant in this one, and you've got to activate every part of that campus for that person to want to be there. So it's, you know, I think probably the biggest change, and I'll, then I'll stop talking, is that the way we define workplace is different, right? It is not just your floor and your desk, it's every part of that building and probably your portfolio. But you know what's interesting? One of our LPs owns, I don't want to call them lifestyle office parks, but that's really in essence what they are. And this is not a new idea. It's been around for like 40 years and the locations are suburban. So if you think back, if you take a really long view of the office sector and you think about how obviously it started in densely populated areas, cities, and then you started to have suburbs and exurbs and office these these um, 
one, two, and three-story office buildings that then some of them became flex buildings. It feels like we're just coming back around to that, you know what? I don't need to be in a city anymore. I can I can be in a suburb. I can I can work in a place where there's a restaurant and a lounge and ample parking, a bedroom community. Maybe I'll commute to the city one or two times a week. That's what it feels like. I know that's not exactly what's happening because I tend to agree with you because we talk to our LPs constantly, obviously, and the folk that own those class A buildings, they're thinking exactly the way you just said, which is, hey, we're going to, we're, we're bringing hospitality, this hospitality element into the workplace because we've, blend, we've been blending that together for the past two years as a function of work from home. We want people to feel like if they want to work out of a, a, a cubicle, they can do it. If they want to work out of a place with some couches and ambient music, they can do it. But I don't necessarily think, and maybe I'm wrong, because this is just anecdotal what I'm saying, but I don't necessarily think this is a paradigm shift. It might just be a return to the same impulse that drove uh, the suburban explosion. I mean, what, do you, what do you say about that, Nick? I think it's probably pretty tr- pretty accurate. I think, listen, if history is told us anything it's like these things all these cycles always repeat themselves maybe in some different shape or form i mean we work's a good example of that we work wasn't the first flex provider they did it a little bit differently but if you look about what about what made them successful again you can argue their business model doesn't really work and companies struggling but like you can't deny the demand or the number of users that they were able to grab and their their biggest advantage was their scale right? You had a campus of 55 countries to work out of, whatever the number was. Like, in my mind, like, that's what made that so intriguing for people was the scale, right? So like, you know, take that and shrink it, right? If I live in New York City, and I can have a mini version of that scale, because I want to work different ways, different days, and so does my team, I'll take that option over the, you know, work on the third floor in cube five. I'll take the option every single time. And so I think that, listen, the jury is still out in terms of how this is really going to look but I think for the first time in a long time, there's at least a glimpse of what it could look like. I like that uh, cliffhanger. Um, yeah, in terms of like, what's what what will it look like? What's the right mix of, of uses? Uh, I, I personally got excited when I learned uh, recently about this new Costco design with apartments overhead uh, that are they're planning in uh, South LA. I mean, I think this is something that, you know, we, we would have thought it's, it's not feasible or doesn't make sense, right? To have these big box retailers uh, within like office or, or housing campuses. And now it's making more sense uh, with, with the hybrid work. Well, wait a second. I, I'm curious if the design is one of those massive 250,000 to a million square foot warehouses, I think that would probably be a pretty big shift. But big box retail has lived under apartments for, for quite some time. And I think that goes back to the point of, Everything that's old is new again. Everything that's new eh, at one point was old. Absolutely. Um, yeah, let's move on to uh, from the tenant's perspective, right? Uh, the paradigm shift. What, what advancements or innovations in, in amenities and prop tech are, are being added to, to office and, and commercial real estate at large to, to enhance the tenant's uh, experience? Yeah, well, I think there's, listen, there's the hard cost, right? So if you were to walk around Fulton Market in Chicago, which has been largely the highest performing submarket in the United States the past two years. That is because it is pretty much all new stock, 
right? It is all brand new assets that are so highly amenitized. It's hard to know. I, I don't. I don't know how people make money. Like there's so much unbelievable amenities in these assets. We just we just built our Midwest headquarters right there. We took a 320 North Sagamon as a brand new Tishman Spire building. We took two floors. It's insane. Again, it's not rocket science. They're building buildings that are highly appealing for someone to work out of. You go there and you go, like the hiring, the hiring I'm gonna be able to do here, the productivity we're gonna see, the events we can do, the restaurants we can go to, like it adds up to an infinitely better experience then. You wanna do a Zoom for 20 minutes tomorrow? No, blow my effing brains out. I wanna come see you in the office because it's fucking awesome. It's part of my French. So my point is like, it's kind of become the model. So there's, there's the hard cost of like, what can I build? At the same time, like every other part of our universe, the technology has to follow suit to activate those specific things, which is why we've made the investment we're making. We've, we've spent, uh, it's gotta be close to $300 million in the past two and a half years on, the, on this world we've considered tenant experience, right? Which we took that as kind of like tip of the iceberg as to where this probably should go. Um, we've got a massive launch coming in probably six weeks, six or eight weeks uh, in this exact category. But at the end of the day, you need to have the hard assets, right? The, the places that people want to go and they've got to have the appropriate technology to go and activate that new workplace so that all lines of communication, all things are accessible. The experience is really different. So you can have the best car in the world. If you have no key, there's no point. You can't drive it. So similar mindset is where we're really, really focused. Yeah, I think people never really cared about about the office itself as much as commuting to the office. So those new assets, uh, you know, new or old, they better be in good locations that people can access easily, either via transporta public transportation or by cars in the U.S. Um, we haven't spoken much about uh, VTS, uh, but I mean, you guys are the largest first party data source in the industry. Um, you're, you're fueling you know, investment and asset strategies, leasing and marketing automation, property operations and, and tenant experience. Uh, so what? how does VTS fit in this paradigm shift? Uh, what's going to happen with VTS in the next couple of years? Uh, tell us. Yeah, well, I, I think we're in a unique spot because, you know, we get almost a, there's no crystal ball, but I think we've got probably the closest thing uh, in terms of what's going to happen, right? As you mentioned, like our, our data is forward-looking. It's not a lease comp, which is a lease that got signed probably a year ago, right? We're looking at people who are actively looking for space that are going to transact probably six to 12 months from now, as well as active negotiations, right? So not comps, but deals being negotiated. So how are those negotiations changing over time? How are requirement sizes changing? Which kinds of space is really getting activity versus others? So these are all things that we've always wanted to know and never had any insight to. So um, now doing this 10 years and having the, the market share we have, that data is really good. And it, it informs both the things we can help our customers with around strategy, around how to build space, which markets to invest in or, or not to, but also which products we should be building, right? Like we, that's all good data for us internally to use to figure out, all right, this is telling us that the world's going to go here. That's going to put our customers in a good or bad spot. How do we help them? I think looking at that, that's kind of one lens. The other lens is just like, you can't ignore the, the macro, right? Like where are our customers right now? And what are they struggling with? Right? We know that, for example, every single cost hitting an asset really matters. So you better be something that has a very, very clear ROI for them, 
or you're probably gone. Um, I think where we've been going, and I think, again, we're fortunate to be in this place where our vision was always to make this a platform. It was never to be a portfolio of products. It is one platform that connects all the people in your organization because silos are very expensive. So forget about the actual technology you're buying. If no one's talking, the opportunities that you miss are super expensive. And so it's about building a platform that largely does help you consolidate some technology. You probably don't need the 20 applications you have. You can do it with 10 because they do the same thing. So it's making sure we're providing the right information, but also the right products that then help kind of activate those teams in a single platform. Um, because saving money matters, information is probably more critical than ever, and whatever they're using better be pretty much idiot proof, right? This has to be, there's no directions. You log in, you know what to do. I like that you highlight the importance of, uh, you know, real-time market information and also forward-looking. I think that's super crucial in, in such uncertain, volatile environments. Um, I also like uh, what you said before regarding the roles of the asset manager, the property manager, and, and leasing marketing. I mean, the, they are blurring the lines between those roles or, or those roles will get, you know, uh, will, will unite in terms of, of uh, their approaches. But I would argue that their roles will become even more important in a time where where uh, operational efficiency matters more than ever, where asset appreciation, you know, might not happen for office, for a lot of the office buildings. So crucial that they are empowered with the right tools and the, and the right technology like like VTS. Um, last but not least, uh, Nick, a couple of fast ones for you. Uh, the future of cities. Uh, what's one aspect of your city, New York City, uh, that you wish other cities would adopt? So, as you know, I love New York City. I think I... I Pretty much everything I have in my life, I probably owe to the city from the, this business to my wife, my kids. It's I, it's like a it's part of me. Um, I think the best part of New York City is the resiliency of the people and what that creates from an, like, an ecosystem perspective. Like people love it here, so they want to be out. And it's such a social city. And for me, that is the thing. It's like it's social because people – freaking love it here, right? And that resiliency is like contagious. And I know we're coming out of a pandemic, it's the wrong word to use, but it is. And so like, I mean, for me, like I go to places like San Francisco and like, I'm like, oh, SF is this, like you see these beautiful towers and you're like, my first time going there, I called my co-founder Ryan, I'm like, dude, this place is awesome. I'm seeing billboards for software companies. And in New York, you don't see that, you see, you know, fashion companies and, and which is cool too but i was like dude like we're starting this tech company this is so cool i go downtown at like 9 p.m it's crickets and i'm like this place sucks <laughs> like i don't i wouldn't you I, you couldn't pay me to live here like but again that social aspect of and again new york is i understand it's the really the only true 24 7 city in the world but like it is it makes it such a, such a special place and you fall in love with it so quick that of course you want it to work, right? And you feel up every day being like, I got to make this thing work. So I wish other cities had that, had that like appeal where there was a resilience to the people that was probably driven by the social aspects of that environment. And I know it's a complex answer, but. No, I like the ode to New York City. Nick, I just want to push back on this a little bit because we're talking about two cities, New York and San Francisco, which have governments that, a lot of our constituents, meaning our limited partners, your customers, have significant agita about. the. We just do not have a favorable municipal government in place in either city. 
you, you can argue that Eric Adams is certainly better than President de Blasio. I, he, kept it, he kept his promise. He did say, I'm going to informally, I'm going to stick it to Manhattan. And he did. He did exactly what he said he would do. And, you know, when people voted for that. And there's more to New York City than just the borough of Manhattan. So I, I don't begrudge uh, the, the voters for choosing that. But when you take someone who is antagonistic to the capitalist base of the city, you're going to have you're going to have some significant problems. San Francisco is experiencing that even more so. And and then you layer on top of it the fact that you called in. I, I, I won't use the word hangover. Let's use in. Let's use the word overhang. Hangover, overhang, overhang from from COVID, and you and and a shifting environment for how people work. The office world, the office market, professional services being the largest economic driver in New York City, it doesn't feel too hopeful at the moment. I agree with you that the that the spirit of the city is resilient because if you look, I remember going there when I was a kid in the '90s, pre Giuliani, when it was just scary. I loved it. I loved I loved the the grittiness, the realness of of New York City. But now that I'm a father, there is no way. I'm raising my kids in New York City right now. And I'm curious how you think about that. And frankly, your constituent, your customer base, where like you're seeing the data, are they shrinking their, their, their footprints? Is it just a function of the office environment or are they moving to other geographies? We had plenty of companies that moved out of New York to Florida, et cetera, Texas. Yeah, most of that is for tax purposes, not for not for the cities. I mean, the cities as idea that New York is like all of a sudden highly unsafe. I have two kids here, eight and two. They both go to public schools. Like it's as safe as ever been. Like I've never, I haven't experienced anything except there was probably like a six month period during the worst parts of COVID where it got pretty dicey, right? Because there was nobody outside except for the folks you don't want to see outside. And so that was the only time in 22 years of me being here where I was like, oh, that was weird. Um, since then, you could. I, I walk my dog at two in the morning. I've, it's, it's every restaurant is packed twenty four seven. The other weird thing is that while the office buildings might be half full or three quarters full, the restaurants you can't get a reservation. It is crazy. So there's. I think that the office market is very different from the the larger New York City as a whole. Um, and that's the problem. That's that's that, that's the problem we've got to figure out. Right? Is how do you get those people who are comfortable enough to go to the, the nightclub and the restaurant to go to work on Monday. And so, and so I think that, that's the, the next part of this conversation is like, okay, the headwind, clearly we're heading towards a recession. Like most investment banks will tell you it's going gonna, it's gonna to be official in you know, Q2, Q3 is maybe the bottom. I think that will be the best thing to happen to office in probably three years because there's going to be winners and losers. And when the winners are the ones who've been in the office, well, guess what? I feel really good saying, I'll see you on Monday, 9 a.m. I think we'll see a shift there in the power between employers and employees if, if that scenario uh, comes up. But uh, just to wrap up this, I think the crucial to, to cities is, is unlocking the dynamism of, of remote work, like Nick was saying. And like the cities are, are the single biggest and, and densest job center in, in each of like the top 40 U.S. cities. Like... They're the biggest nodes for economic prosperity. The whole country's economy depends on it. So, like people that are cheering for offices to to go for cities to go down, or people that are saying that um, 
cities are dangerous, you know, just got to look at the data and then like figure that out. But leaving that aside, whoever's cheering for cities or downtowns to go down, like you don't have to live there to like know that it will impact everyone, each and every one of us. Because if you live in a suburb outside a city, you're benefiting from being outside the city without necessarily paying taxes to that city. Uh, I'm looking at you, everyone in New Jersey. But anyway, neither here nor there. Um, now, last but not least, uh, Nick, what's one aspect, one perspective, one opinion that you've changed your mind about and, and how did you go about it? Um, so I, I think probably like a lot of CEOs was very much in the mind that if you were not in the office, you just genuinely were not working at all. Like you were playing Nintendo or whatever. I actually now believe it's not true. I think there, I think like one day a week or, or something in that line is actually healthy to be home and working because there's like there is heads down work that is actually effective for people that when you are being you know interrupted can be less productive. So I, I think that's it, well, it might seem like a small change. I was like, no, 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 you're not here, you're not working. Thanks for sharing. We're gonna close with uh, two quick shout outs. First, wanna thank uh, the VTS team and Eric Johnson for producing the Vody report, the VTS Office Demand Index, which we got some of our data uh, that you listened to in this episode from. Uh, also shout out to uh, Jeff and his team at Camber Creek. Uh, Jeff, I believe you recently announced uh, a little a little opportunity fund, a little $100 million uh, opportunity fund. So congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, on top of the 325 million that we that we just closed on. And uh, what it means is, is that people are still hungry for innovation in the space. They want to invest in the best companies that are driving transformation of the real estate industry, which uh, we're proud to say that we were an early investor in, in Nick's company at BTS. And uh, they're one of the leaders in the space. So this is it's pretty awesome to see. Nick Romito, founder and CEO at VTS. Thank you so much for coming on with us today. Thanks, everybody. I had a lot of fun. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Tangent and share this episode with a friend. This season is edited by Katarina Silva and is produced by me, Edward Cohen. Thanks for listening to Tangent and remember, collaboration is our superpower. So stay curious and always be learning.